Mark 15. Everybody look at ver uh, verse 33, please. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lima, Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. The cross. The death of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross is central to the Christian faith in this. God achieved the redemption of believers and brought hope to the world. That's what's happening here. He brought redemption and brought hope. And if you guys remember, and I'll tell you today for those of you that weren't here, we had a sermon preached. Uh, I did it in the very first of January. We talked about resolutions. And one of them was based on this verse from Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, 2. For I decided to know nothing among you Nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So Paul was saying, let's preach Christ. Let's preach Him crucified. It's a resolution I took on this year, and I challenged a lot of you to take it. Um, Paul was doing it. And it's the message of the cross. Preaching Christ crucified is the message of the cross. But what is the message? People aren't understanding truly what's happening as he is hanging on this cross hour after hour. So I'd like to give quite a bit of biblical support real quick. Uh, but let me start with this verse. Again, Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, 17 and 18. It's a beautiful opening. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Listen to this, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For the word of the cross is the power of God. Well, let's talk about this. The word of the cross is the power of God in redemption. In redemption. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Now, if you don't know this, the form of Roman torture we're talking about, the cross was fashioned from a tree. Jesus hung on this tree. He became the curse. We were cursed. No longer, He became the curse. Romans 6.14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. As Christ became this curse, by the way, He fulfilled the law, and He died under that law, to that law, as that curse taking our place. And where did He put us? We weren't under the law, were we? 
We were placed under grace. This new covenant under His blood, under grace. Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And here it is. He removed the curse from us, placed us under grace, gave us His righteousness while He took everything else. That is the word of the cross and the power of God in redemption. So we were redeemed. The power of God also. The word of the cross is the power of God in reconciliation and justification. Look at these. Romans 4.25 Who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus gave himself up. Okay? Make no mistake. They just didn't take Jesus. He gave himself up. The Father allowed this. And he gave him up for our trespasses, and he was raised up on that cross for our justification, meaning you and I, since the curse is removed, since we've been placed under grace, since we are covered by His righteousness, God can look at us now. He couldn't look at us before. Now we are justified in His sight. We can stand before Him because of that justification. Colossians 1.20-22 through 22, And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Reconciling you meant that he took his body of flesh, gave it up for what purpose? Well, if we know the curse was removed and we know that righteousness now covers us and we're placed in grace, we know that we're justified before His eyes now. We've been made right. This is telling us through all of this, the blood of His cross, everything He suffered was to present you and me holy and blameless. That's what was happening as He hung on the cross. But it doesn't stop there. For the word of the cross is the power of God in destroying the power of Satan. Colossians 2, 13-15 And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to sh open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is something. Christ conquered Satan. He destroyed him. He conquered death. And what does he say? We had legal demands against us. Folks, we had a debt that we could not cover. There's nothing you could do to cover this debt. And it was right there standing against us, pressing against us these legal demands. And what did He do? He nailed it to the cross. Conquering sin. 
conquering Satan. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Christ was flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. And who's that? That is the devil. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Were we bound by Satan? Were we enslaved? Yes. We were in a place that was bad. But Christ took us from this position, moved us to this position. How? Because He destroyed Satan and He conquered death. So we know that the Word of the Cross covers even the destruction of Satan. The Word of the Cross is the power of God and uniting us with Jesus. Romans 6, 4 and 7. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly, certainly, I love that word, be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Look at this union. We're unified with Him in His death, and certainly we are unified with Him in His resurrection. We are a part of this. Why? Because our old self was crucified with Jesus on that cross. This is part of the great work. And what do we get? We get a newness of life. For one who has died has been set free. We have been set free because we are united in Christ, and we are united with Christ. Look at Colossians 3, 1-3. through If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and listen to this, your life is hidden. It is hidden with Christ and God. Now let me talk about this. If you have been raised with Christ, here again, we are united in His death. We are united with Him in His resurrection. If we've been raised with Christ just as He was resurrected and we were brought into this newness of life, our mind, our thoughts, our hearts, our focus should be upwards towards Christ where He sits at the right hand of God. Because our life, it's not here on this earth. Our life is not even about you and I. It is hidden with Christ. That's who we identify with. That's who we identify with. And you know what else? The Word of the cross is the power of God in our relationship. In His discipleship of us and our relationship with Him. Matthew 16.24 Then Jesus told His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And what? Follow me. Denying yourself. This is self-sacrifice as we take up our cross. And this is daily. Denying ourselves, again, with our minds set upwards on Christ. 
denying ourselves, and following Him. That, my friends, is a relationship that was restored through the blood on that cross. 1 Peter 2.21 For to you, excuse me, for to this you have been called. We've been called to this. Where am I at? There we go. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His footsteps. We know what an example is. Christ left us His example. And in our relationship, as we deny ourselves and focus on Him and take up our cross, we are to follow in His footsteps. Meaning we are to learn and live out Christ in our lives. So let me summarize the message of the cross. We were redeemed. That is, we were purchased and we were moved from one place to another. The former, of course, was death. The former was death under the power of Satan. We were moved from that bondage. We were moved from that bondage to one of reconciliation. We were brought back to God. We were restored. We were justified before His very eyes. We were made right by the blood of Jesus. Now we belong to Him forever. We are united to Christ. We are united in Christ denying ourselves as we take up our cross and we follow Him every moment of every day. This is the power of God in the work and the Word of the cross. Now, I love this verse. For me, it sums everything up. In 1 Peter 2.24, it says this, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, you have been healed. By His wounds. See, He was alive when placed on the cross. There's no denying that. And on that same cross, He took His last breath, giving His life. There's no denying that. You could be an atheist, agnostic, you could be a non-believer. There's more documentation. It's so well documented that the man Jesus did die on a Roman cross. He did suffer that execution. They don't deny that. Non-believers will concede, yeah, you're right. Jesus did die on the cross. But that's where it ends for them. It doesn't for us. By His wounds, we found healing, folks. This is what's going on as He's hanging on this cross in agony hour after hour. He was giving Himself to us for healing. The cross itself is not what's important here. You need to realize that. It's not the cross itself. It's what Jesus did up on that cross is where we find healing. So look at what is actually happening as Christ gives His life for you and me. I don't know if these were the thoughts as people mourned the loss of this loved one. As people were rooting for His death. Come on, die so we can get on with our lives. I don't know what the thought process was of those people because I was not an eyewitness and I didn't talk to them. But you and I have the Word of God and we can sit back and go, my goodness, hour after agonizing hour, this is what He was doing. But was His death the end of the story? We're going to come back to that in just a second. Thank you, Angela. Thank you, Catherine. That was beautiful. That was beautiful. Folks, turn in your Bibles to Luke 23. Luke 23. I gave you quite a bit of Scripture 
regarding the cross because I wanted the biblical evidence, the biblical support to show what Jesus was doing for you. I needed you to understand just how deep this love is. So that's why we had so much Scripture to back up the word of the cross, the work of the cross, the message of the cross. But now I want to talk about the tomb. So if you're in Luke 23, I'd like you to start here with me in verse 50. Luke 23, 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. All four Gospels give an account of his burial. The tomb is interesting, though. I grew up with a pastor back in the 80s. I hate to date myself, but you know I had the gold chain. You know that gold rope chain with the cross? It was cool wearing gold back then. I don't know if it still is. I don't wear it, so I'm going to say it's not cool. But back then I had a cross, and everybody wore crosses. This is what we did. Cross earrings, they had the charms on whatever you call those bracelets with a million charms, right? And they had the necklaces. And my pastor absolutely hated it. He abhorred it. He said, why would you advertise a form of torture? Why would you advertise a form of torture? And I thought about it. I was like, that's weird, man. But he likened it to this. He goes, hey, would you wear like guillotine earrings? Or would you wear like an electric chair on your chain? I was like, okay, I get where you're coming from now. But the problem with that is that we know the cross is symbolic to a follower of Christ. We know that the cross is symbolic to what he did upon that cross. And that's why we wear it. And most of the time when I see somebody with a cross, I assume that they're believers. I know it's not always the case. But it is easy to assume when someone wears a cross. But thinking back to that story, I kept thinking, well, the tomb doesn't really get that much attention. It's not like you can go out and buy a tomb charm for your rope chain. You know, we don't wear tomb-shaped earrings, right? The tomb, it's not dismissed, but it does not get as much play and action as the cross. So, Jesus was placed in a tomb by a man named Joseph. Nicodemus was there too. You can read that in another passage. I'll explain that in a second. And several people witnessed the location of this tomb. But I want to read something to you. But first, let me plant a seed. Let me plant a seed. Think about this. Whether the stone had been rolled away or not, they come to the tomb, and I don't like what ifs, but what if Jesus' body was still there? just laying there or what if years later they said you know what was he really the messiah they roll away that stone and there lies his bones right 
What if he was still in that tomb? I want to read, and you can follow along with me, in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. We'll put it up for you. This is important. Here's Paul. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ's body was still in the tomb, you and I are pathetic. We need to be pitied. We are a joke because we are worshiping someone, giving our lives to someone, fully dependent on someone who wasn't who he was, didn't do what he said he was going to do. It was a lie. It's false. If his bones were there, if his body was there, we are the most to be pitied. Why would we be meeting on this Sunday morning? Why come on Wednesday nights? Why come on any night to church? What would be the point? It's in vain. We are most to be pitied. But here's the beauty. Here's the beauty of this. The tomb made it all real. The tomb made everything real. Who Jesus is made it real. What He said He would do made it real. Everything that He taught made it real. Our future hope is real. Everything that happened there is real. Folks, there were many eyewitnesses watching Jesus on the cross. Like I said, you had Mary and John and some of the other ladies mourning the loss, watching someone they loved slowly pass away. You had spectators there that were there for Passover. They'd come out just to see the show. What's he going to do? Will he come off the cross? What's he going to do? You had, you had religious leaders that were sitting there probably thinking, my goodness, will you hurry up and just die? It's the day of preparation. We have to get to Passover. We just want to move on with our lives and be done with you. And then you had the Roman guard who was just indifferent. We're here because it's our job. We can care less what's going on. We don't care about the religious leaders. We don't care about this man hanging on the cross. It's our job. But you can't dismiss how many eyewitnesses were at the cross. Just waiting for him to die. Outside the tomb where he was laid again, there were many who witnessed the body of Jesus entering this tomb. You had Joseph. Now, Joseph was rich, folks. Joseph wasn't doing the work. He had workers, okay? So you'd have Joseph of Arimathea and his workers. Nicodemus came. Nicodemus came to help prepare the body. He knew where the tomb was. The Bible tells us that Mary Magdalene and another Mary, the Mary, uh, mother of James, they were there. They saw the tomb. They wanted to know where he was placed because after Passover, they were going to finish preparing that body. They loved him. The Jewish leaders, they knew where the tomb was. How do we know that? 
because they went to Pilate and said, please put guards at this tomb. We believe they're going to steal the body. Place guards there. Folks, the tomb location was known. What is unknown is what happened in that tomb. What happened inside? What did it look like? Can you tell me? When exactly did it happen? We don't know what happened inside that tomb, but Acts 2.24, I love this verse. Acts 2.24 says, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Folks, Jesus had risen because death could not hold him. Why? Because he conquered death. He destroyed it. And he made everything real. The whole tomb scene can be summed up pretty quickly in four words. Here's what it is. Four words. The tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. And here is where the theories is what happened as to what happened. They begin to run rampant. Let's just go over these real quick. The biggest of these, the disciples stole the body. I want to address these because this is still relevant to today. The disciples stole the body. Okay, they placed guards at the tomb. The disciples that night, that early morning, late night, Thursday and Friday, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane they, they, they ran. They ran. They scattered when Jesus was arrested. Peter even sliced the ear off a man. One of the soldiers took his ear off with a sword. Jesus healed him. But then Peter denied Christ three times during these illegal trials that were happening before his crucifixion. Jesus didn't have anybody. He didn't have any support. He was on his own. So you're telling me in all the frightening situation here, the confusion, the scare, the, the, they're, they're, they're fearful that they were going to come and take that body. Well, no, that, that didn't happen. That did not happen. The disciples didn't seal the body. And I'll explain more why they didn't in a second. Swoon theory. Jesus was not hurt that bad. He was just unconscious, and he came back to life. And in all the agonizing pain, he rolled that stone away and walked out. Here's the problem. Any medical professional worth their weight will tell you that Jesus Christ was most likely in what we call hypovolemic shock. When he was scourged, when he was whipped with those bits of bone and, and, and metal that slit his back open, they got down to the skeletal muscles. He was ripped open. Jesus Christ was literally ripped open for us. And when that happened, he began to go into what we call hypovolemic shock. How do we know this? Because when he was dying on the cross, actually when he died, they stuck him with a, a spear. Just to check. Just so you know, preparation day, Passover, they wanted to hurry it up. So they were going to break the bones of all the knees. They didn't have to break Jesus' bones. Fulfilling prophecy. They did not have to break his bones because he was already dead. The criminals, they had to break their knees and write. Because if you don't know this, when you're suffering on a cross, you're suffocating. You're pushing up to breathe, and then you have to let down because you're pushing up with nails in your feet. So you can imagine the pain pushing up with that nail through your feet. But then as well, you have nails up here in your hands or wrist area, and you're going to feel that pain as you slack back down. Either way, you were in severe pain. And his back was probably rubbing against the wood of that cross, making it even worse. So he would go up to breathe and come down. But if your knees are broken, if your legs are broken, you can't push up anymore and you suffocate. They did not have to do that to Jesus. 
He was already dead. They stuck him with a spear. Water and blood poured out of that wound. Again, revealing the extent of his injuries and the shock that he was in. You don't get up from that. You don't roll a heavy stone away. And if you do, we'd find you just a few feet from that tomb face first in the dirt. That doesn't work. The wrong tomb. We've already proved how many people knew the location of the tomb. But some people say, oh, they went to the wrong tomb. That's why it was empty. No. Twin brother. You ever heard of this one? Jesus had a twin brother and they switched out? Nope. Nope. Legend. What a great story. What a beautiful story. What a wonderful legend. Jesus Christ is a legend. And then, of course, one of my favorites, as well as the stolen body, is mass hallucinations. All these different groups of people, geographically located in different areas, outside, for the majority of them, all suffered the same mass hallucination. That'd be the first we've ever heard of something like that. It's so funny when the Bible tells us that the world wants to suppress the truth, because we see it here. They are shooting and aiming for anything and everything that would point away from a risen Christ, to redirect eyes and hearts to something else except for the, 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 the resurrection of Jesus. They don't want to face the truth. But the tomb, folks, made it all real. The tomb made it all real. And you know what? I love this. It was literally a borrowed tomb. Listen, Joseph, I'm only going to need it for three days. It was a borrowed tomb. The significance of the tomb is that it points to the bodily resurrection of Jesus, where we'll go next. So the tomb, folks, is not the end of the story. Well, folks, to finish up here, we're in John 20. If you want to turn in your Bibles to John 20, I just want to look at, uh, start there with verse 1 there in John chapter 20. It says this, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. See, they thought they took him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, that's John, of course. And they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together with the other disciple outran, excuse me, <clears throat> but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. They didn't understand. The resurrection, folks, is part of the death and burial that is so central to the Christian faith. Jesus was resurrected. We say he is risen. So we have eyewitnesses at the cross. We have eyewitnesses uh, at the tomb, right? The location of the tomb. Now we have eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. All the gospels provide a different sequence of events. 
Okay? They each give different details, but they all harmonize together to give us a wonderful and full picture of what is happening on this day of resurrection. You have to remember when Mary arrived, the two guards, or how many guards were there, were frozen in fear for what they had just witnessed. A great earthquake. An angel rolling away that, that tomb, that door, that stone. Sitting upon it just waiting to deliver a wonderful message. John got there first, peeked in. Peter got there, went in. That's who Peter was. And the face cloth was what went with the linen shroud. And the tomb, well, it was empty. So even though the Gospels give us a full picture of what's happening, folks, guys, listen, we have a lot to process here. There is still a lot to process. Jesus didn't just wake up from a very bad beating. He didn't come to and go, wow, that hurt. Let me get out of this tomb. His spirit did not leave him and appear to others as some apparition. He yielded his spirit on that cross, giving his life. Remember, he yielded his spirit to God. So what happened? His spirit, life itself, re-entered his physical body and he was physically raised. He didn't just wake up. It wasn't an apparition. Spirit re-entered, and he was physically raised. Physically dead on the cross? Yes. Physically dead as he was laid in the tomb? Absolutely. Physically alive as he made himself known over the next 40 days to his disciples, as well as many other confirming eyewitnesses. Jesus was alive. He had risen from the dead, a physical resurrection. Again, we have the hope of the same being united in Christ because of the work on the cross. Here's the wonderful thing that I love. Here's my key word, transformation. How do we know that Jesus really rose from the dead? Well, the guards saw what happened. You know what happened to the guards? The religious leaders paid them off in money. Tell everyone, just tell them the disciples stole the body. The disciples stole the body. Can you do that? We're going to pay you off. That's one thing. But the transformation of the disciples, folks, you have to remember, none of them knew what was going on. Peter had denied to Christ, right? Uh, uh, the, The disciples had scattered. They were up in the upper room. They were scared to death. They were confused. Where's the body of Jesus? I don't know where the body of Jesus is. They took the body of Jesus. Had they taken the body, you know, they would have easily displayed Jesus. It would have been fun for them to mock him. Where is Jesus? We are confused. We are scared. We don't know what's going on. You have to understand the reality of what the disciples were facing here. Like John said, once he entered the tomb, he started to believe. For as yet, they did not know. They didn't understand. Look at the church growth, starting in Jerusalem. If this was a lie, if this was fake, how did the church grow? You had timid and frightened disciples one day, and then all of a sudden they're out in the streets proclaiming Christ, preaching at Pentecost, thousands coming to know him. Jerusalem was affected by the growth of this church. Then it started to spread through Judea. Then all the world, folks, Reedsville, North Carolina, we are proof of a risen Christ. We're not to be pitied. We're not pathetic. 
We were followers of Christ, and this is living proof, the transformation of the church. Because men don't die for a lie, not usually. Every single one of these disciples, the majority of them were martyred for their beliefs and preaching. All of them, as they scattered and began to continue the work God gave them in the Great Commission, they were killed for it. Who would want to die a horrible death based on a lie? Hold, hold the phone. We took the body. This is all a joke. Please don't kill me. Men don't die for a lie. The transformation of what happened to these disciples and how the Word of God spread and continues to spread is it's the proof. It's the evidence because we don't die for a lie. So here it is. He proved everything. What happened on the cross? He proved our redemption. He proved our reconciliation, our justification. He proved it. His victory over Satan and death, he proved it. His union with you and I, he proved it. Our relationship with him, he proved it. Folks, all that was done on the cross is proven in the resurrection. He is who he said he is. He did what he said he was going to do. And I believe in the future because of that. I believe him. He was not hanging there, folks, for six hours just to die. He wasn't hanging there to be a spectacle, if you will, for six hours until his life left him. Jesus was doing a great work bringing redemption and hope to mankind. And you know what the reason is? There is a cause to this. There is a cause to all of this. It's because of love. Love brought Jesus into this world. Love took Jesus out of this world. And I preach this as Christmas, and it bears mentioning again. You can take the cross of Christ and place it right next to the manger in the nativity scene. Because he came into this world, he was born into this world to die for us. You can take that manger in the nativity and place it at the cross right there on Golgotha because he had to enter this world in this way so that he could die on the cross for us. It is all about love. And my closing verse is this, 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57. We even sang this a bit ago. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why are we victorious? Because of Jesus Christ. That's what we're celebrating today. This is Easter. The cross was not the end of the story, was it? The tomb was not the end of the story. And guess what? The resurrection is not the end of the story. Because this story does not end. God does not end. And that victory that we've been given, guess what? In Christ, we do not end. Praise God. That's Easter. That's Easter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, your death, that suffering that you endured, for the sole purpose of redeeming us. Lying in that tomb, beaten, tattered. 
for us. Resurrection to life, proof of everything for us. God, we praise you this day. We thank you for this Easter Sunday. We thank you for this Resurrection Day. We give you all the glory. We give you all the honor, Lord, in our prayer, in this word that you've delivered, in the music that we've got to sing today, Lord. It's all to glorify you and who you are. Because what you've done for us is who you are. We praise the name of Jesus Christ today. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son. We thank you for your son. We thank you for this gift, this sacrifice. His blood covers us. This righteousness is now ours. We can stand before you, and one day we all will. One day, everyone in here, Lord, that's a believer, will be back together in heaven with you. We will be with you, Lord. And we look forward to that day. And it's all because of what you did on the cross. That work on the cross and your resurrection, proving it all true, proving it all real. We give you all the glory. We praise your name. We thank you. We thank you for that. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.